From the Bonsai Acres studio, this is Up North Bonsai. Hello, my name is David Weiss. Welcome to Up North Bonsai. This podcast is a chance for me to talk to and learn from bonsai enthusiasts from all around the upper Midwest to learn about their secrets to successful bonsai. We have an ever-increasing number of amazing bonsai professionals or masters who have set up shop most often on or near the coast. Those of us living in the upper Midwest need to adjust what we learn from these professionals to our colder climates. We have a shorter growing season in the upper Midwest and our climate is constantly changing. I believe there is a lot we can learn from each other about how to create beautiful bonsai in the North Country. My goal is to help others enhance their bonsai journey in their microclimate. For me, bonsai is all about the journey. I'm a firm believer in lifelong learning and hope this podcast can spread good information to those just getting into the hobby, or in my case, lifestyle. For the purposes of this podcast, the Upper Midwest will consist of bonsai enthusiasts that live in zones 3, 4, and 5, including my home in the state of Minnesota, North and South Dakota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska, and perhaps some of our friends way up there north of the border in Canada. My guest today on Up North Bonsai is Brian Lorenzen. Brian is the president of the Milwaukee Bonsai Society and lives in Franklin, Wisconsin, about 10 miles from Lake Michigan. Join me now as we head up north and talk bonsai. What made you catch the bonsai bug? How did it all start for you, Brian? Well, I'm not exactly sure. Can it really be genetic? My, <laughs> my dad was a forest ranger for a while. So maybe he liked trees and, you know, uh, I got a little bit of Nordic background and trees up there and everything. So there you go. maybe it came from that far away. Uh, but my dad was in the uh, forest service for a while. And then he found out that the U.S. government would move you around too much. So he bought a flower shop in my hometown. So he spent his whole life with flowers. And then I took over the business from him. So I've been growing plants uh, my whole life. So okay. taking care of a plant and knowing when it needs water uh, is like second nature for me. And mm -hmm. I've tried to help people my whole life who are overwatering plants or their plant that they got for their mother's funeral is dying after 10 years. Can I, can you help me kind of thing? So sure. that's where I got the bug, I think. And I was in it for a brief time in like maybe 1975. Okay. Or, or maybe a year, year and a half. And then I just had too many things going on in my life. And it wasn't until I retired in 2014 uh, that I really got into it again. I've often joked uh, with members of the Minnesota Bonsai Society, that house plants I'm horrible with, but I've really become a fairly decent green thumb and I keep most of my bonsai alive. <laughs> How have you adjusted from plants to bonsai? Because, you know, as we'll probably talk a little bit later, the soil's different. Uh, there's just so many different things. Do you, are you finding it easier or harder to go from plants to bonsai? I think I had a good feeling for um, what's going on down in the soil for roots. And no, when I first started at the flower shop, we would make up 
gardens out of mixtures of kinds of plants and sell them to people. And all we were using for soil back then was black loam, just black topsoil. Okay. And I was finding that people were killing all the plants. So back in uh, 74, maybe, um, I got into mixing up my own soil. Uh, maybe it's because I got a little bit of bonsai in me in that time and yeah. started putting uh, peat moss and perlite and all that kind of stuff to give my customers a chance to keep things alive. Uh, an airier soil would mean you would need to water it more often and a more dense, compact soil made it scarier to know when to water a plant. It, that was the start of it, I think. And I got a feel for it over the years with people bringing in sopping wet plants right. and wondering why they're dying and people trying to water on a schedule rather than check it on a schedule and water it when it needs it. Right, right. We've heard that a lot in our Bonsai Club. People talk about we can't just do it every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday at this time with Bonsai, we really have to check them. We have to know when it needs it instead of having a schedule. You know, I'm, I've been thinking about making up like a scale and not just a scale with two sides to it, but a scale that would have two sides. It would be uh, the sunlight. If it's brighter, it needs more water. The temperature, it needs more water. Yep. Uh, the density of the soil. And you have to keep all those things balanced out. For sure. And then add wind to that, and it's a whole other factor, right? Humidity, oh, yeah. everything. Yeah. Where do you practice bonsai? Tell us about your microclimate. Well, I'm in Franklin, Wisconsin, so we're about um, 10 miles away from Lake Michigan. So okay. Lake Michigan has a little bit more protection in the wintertime than what we do. We get a little bit more severe cold than even 10 miles away. Being wow. close to the lake really makes a, a difference. Um, but, you know, so we can get down to uh, 10 or 20 below zero here. Uh, anything that's big that's still uh, in a wooden box that I had dug up recently, um, mm -hmm. that'll just go in the garage. And I may put some styrofoam around it to try to protect the wooden boxes that it's in. And then I'll hang a, a pretty high intensity, uh, two foot by two foot, uh, LED light over it just to assist it just in case it needs it. That question has come up with a lot of people to light or not to light in cold frames. So you're adding light in the garage. Tell me why you're doing it. What's your current knowledge or understanding about light or are you just doing it to try it? I do it partially out of paranoia. When I first got going, I had two boxwoods. One, I moved up into a window with, an, with a fluorescent light over it. And okay. the other one just sat on the garage floor. Yeah. And the one on the garage floor died. And it's like, okay, no matter what, everything's going to get a light. You know, maybe that's anecdotal and it really isn't a fact, but sure. I'm not going to risk that. Yeah. I just <laughs> upgraded my, my cold frame in my garage this year, made it twice as uh, big, a little bit taller. And I added lights in my garage cold frame for the first time in five years. So I'm very curious how my trees are going to be in the spring. Yeah, they say, or I've heard people say, that it's not until your tree is above 40 degrees will it grow. But there's times here that my, many times that my garage is above 40 degrees. So sure. I need to protect it for those times. Absolutely. And, then, Absolutely. and then any of the smaller plants I have go into an actual partially below ground cold frame on the side of my house. Okay. And I built that out of PVC and styrofoam with some 
like uh, plastic siding for a house over it to try to make it look pretty. And it's got a big lean-to kind of door that opens up on one side. Okay. And those are in there, and I have in there to help protect them um, some heat blankets that I bought at a Menards one year that were on sale. And they're the kind of heat blankets that you might use on your basement floor if you're working in your workshop and your basement floor is cold and you stand on this heated mat. And sure. so I have two of those on the floor of the cold frame hooked up to a thermostat that I plug into the soil of the plants. So I'm okay. just mostly trying to warm up the root balls a little bit because sure. here we've heard, um, I think it was Michael Hagedorn did some uh, testing and found out the roots can take a certain temperature and the leaves and branches can take another temperature. Yeah. And so you need to protect the roots uh, really when it boils down to protecting the roots because the leaves can handle almost anything. Yeah, Michael Hagedorn's uh, uh, research and work on that's been great. I, I read his book, Bonsai Heresy, a couple times through now. And uh, one of the conversations that's come up a lot with bonsai enthusiasts now, especially with our cold frame discussion and cold winters, like obviously you have more extremes than I even thought you had. But that uh, difference between even if you're in zone 4B, the upper part of your tree is in one zone, but the roots are going to be really technically in a different zone. And that all depends also on the size of pot you have and some of those kind of factors. Uh, you know, does that make sense and ring true with you as well? Yeah, it does. I think most of the people in the club will put their smaller trees, if they store them in a garage, uh, into a bigger container and put styrofoam peanuts around it or mulch or something like that to help moderate the temperature of the roots a little bit. In your microclimate, then, what are some of the extremes you see in your neck of the woods? Well, in the summertime, it's at 90 quite a bit during the summer. Yeah. So, and when the polar vortex was going on two years ago, we got down to 30 below zero. Oh, so, yeah. So you're very much like in Minnesota where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Like Peter T. would say, uh, if temperatures were like that in California, no one would have bonsai. <laughs> you know, I think he has said the same thing to our members. <laughs> yep. <laughs> he still comes up to visit, but remember, he just comes to visit. Winter solstice. What is the most important thing that you're doing in the winter time? What What is your kind of routine when it's winter, it's here, it's arrived, it's cold? What does a day or a week or a month in the life of your bonsai look like? Well, most of mine, I don't have to do a lot with all winter long. Okay. Uh, the, one, the ones in the garage, um, maybe because it's less humid in the garage, seem to go through more water than the ones in the cold frame. Sure. I think the cold frame seems to contain that. I've never really checked the humidity in there, but it's got to be on the damp side in there. In fact, this year, I was thinking about putting a fan in there to keep things circulating, but I haven't had a problem. So now you get to the point where you don't want to change it if everything's going good. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Because if you add another element when there's, well, why fix something that's not broken? But yeah, if you added that air circulation, is that going to dry your trees out quicker? The ones in the garage, you know, I can keep on an eye on because I'm in the garage. Yep. And sometimes during the cold times, I'll put a, a couple of handfuls of snow on it. So I'll know when it's been above freezing. And when it might need water, of course, sure. because the snow melts on it. Yep. 
Excellent. And Excellent I idea. had been using uh, fancier uh, uh, control things uh, made by lacrosse instruments. And you can put a sensor in your cold frame, a sensor in your garage, and right. it'll send uh, information to your phone and give you alerts when you want if things are getting too hot or too cold. Yeah. But now I got more relaxed on that and I really didn't need to do it anymore. The biggest fear I have right now seems to be uh, with a cold frame outside that when it's cold, you know, like below zero, I tend to want to not lift up the lid, <laughs> even though it may be a time to go in there and check to see if they need water Right. because they've got those heat blankets in there, they might need some water. So yeah. that's a time I should probably pay more attention. But I think because of the humidity in there, I haven't had anything die in two years. The last problem I had was when mice got in there and started to chew on the trunks of some of my trees. What are you doing to avoid those critters? Do you have some techniques <laughs> to stop the critters? Well, uh, I've had, um, I think I'm up to six or eight mouse traps. Uh, out near the cold frame right now, okay. just so I can kill anything in the vicinity. And, you know, yeah. one day I got three mice in one day, but now it's really tapered down. So I think I've got their numbers down. And uh, then the last year I just went nuts on the, um, what do they call the stinky mothballs that you put in there? Right. And it really makes it nasty smelling inside. It but does. I didn't have any of the mice in there, so that's good. It's been interesting. My cold frame, I have one in the garage and one outside. And the one outside last year when I we had kind of our mini polar vortex, we had about two weeks below zero. Uh, that was really tough. And that was the one time that my cold frame lost my uh, my heat source. Um, oh. I, do, I do have a thermostat regulated heat source out there. I'm keeping it right at that 35 to 40 range. And it died. And so I have a, 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 um, what is it? a Bluetooth situation that tells me the, the situation and sounds off an alarm, but my banner didn't go off. The alarm didn't go off. I didn't catch it for over 18 hours. The temperatures went right down and I didn't lose any of the trees in that cold frame, including the Satsky Azalea. So I was very lucky. Oh, good for you. What is the harshest or the biggest struggle for, for that cold winter climate for you then with trees? It's, is it strictly that watering uh, humidity or just the sheer coldness? What is the, what is the biggest thing we have to look for as a bonsai enthusiast in a cold winter like we have in the upper Midwest? I think it's just paying attention to the trees as much as you can, even though it's cold outside, you know, <laughs> getting out of your chair and seeing how damp the Akadama is or whatever you're using yeah. and don't ignore it when you feel like they're hibernating but they're not really hibernating. They still need some moisture. And I think that's the thing because sometimes people have these stacked in their garages on shelves and covered in plastic and everything. And maybe, well, probably they're not as accessible as if they're out on a pretty bench where you yeah. can go out there every day and, yeah. and check on it. So it's kind of going out of your way to take care of things. Yeah, if there's, if there's a piece of advice I could give any young people uh, in this craft, I've, I've said it over and over, I think, to the new folks at MBS, is this that, yeah, if you're making a cold frame of any kind, make it accessible and make sure you're not going to be lazy and not want to lift that cover up or have a whole bunch of stuff on top of it, or you got to check the trees, or like you said, we're going to lose trees. Yeah. And if it's a cold frame, make sure that it's not going to get all that much sunlight because yeah. you don't want it to be like a greenhouse outside 
where it gets hot during the day and then cold at night. On my cold frame, it's got a, like I said, a big lean-to kind of door on it. Mm-hmm. And there's no clear glass or, in my case, uh, the polycarbonate, you know, the corrugated polycarbonate on there. Yep. Uh, yep. There's, there's none of that on the top. It's just a little bit on the sides. Yeah. And that seems to be all it needs. And yep. I really believe it stays pretty close to 35 degrees in there with those heat blankets. That's nice. That's good. I've never tried the heat blanket concept. That's I'd like to learn more about that. If you want the perfect place to go with your trees in the wintertime, own a flower shop and then retire and then be able to take your trees back to the flower shop and put them in that enormous back cooler that they have where the lights are on there for eight, 10 hours a day. And the temperature, you know, is at 35 degrees because if it's any colder, it'd kill all the flowers. Well, when we know someone who has that space for us, I think we could all jump at that opportunity. (laughs) And it works out really good if you have a flowering tree that you're hoping to put into a show and wherever you normally keep it, it's now a warmer time. You could put it into that cooler or your mini fridge or whatever you have and slow those flowers down so you can keep them for the show. What do you do with your trees that are in your basement, all these tropical you have a lot of PAs you showed me, uh, portulacarias. And uh, what do you do for those trees in the wintertime? Well, it started out small, like the whole hobby does, and then it grows. So I have a, I used to keep a few trees in a lower window of our uh, tri-level. And then it moved to, okay, let's put some lights on top of an old pool table. Yeah. And okay, let's put some more lights. And let's put some more lights. So now I've got four to five of eight foot uh, twin bulb LED lights and they're down there and uh, they're all, all the plants are in trays. And then the whole uh, lighted system where I have my lights really close to the trees, Mm -hmm. the whole lighted system is covered with sheets of mylar. So it helps hold in the humidity. It helps hold in the heat and uh, it, it reflects the light back inside. So it can't escape. You know, I showed it to you and you look down there and you can see something glowing in the yeah. basement. Uh, yeah. Like this guy's growing something. But until you <laughs> lift up that mylar, you don't really see what's going on. So that mylar, you're saying, holds the moisture, the heat, and of course reflects the light. So the plants must be loving life under that mylar then. I've got a couple of trees. Well, I've got many trees down there right now. Some club trees for workshops. And then there's uh, some trees from some of our members uh, who were leaving on vacation. And okay. these were uh, a couple, one, one girl, she just was in a ficus beginner workshop this fall. Okay. And the ficus started going downhill a little bit. So I've got okay. her tree in there. And this other uh, woman was going on vacation. And I've got three of her trees, uh, Port nice. Licaria. Um, uh, what's the other one? Uh, a ficus. And I forget the name of her other one, a Korean uh, I forget what it was. That's and they're, they're just growing great right now. And yeah. I think she's going to be in shock when she comes back and sees them. Yeah. In my, in my conversation with her, we got talking about somehow she mentioned um, that she has some kind of an iguana or a lizard or something yeah. like that. And I said, I'm often tempted to use that uh, theory, that way of explaining to people about how to take care of your plant in the wintertime, especially because it's like taking care of my old iguana that I had. Sure. You needed to feed it. You needed to give it water, but it also needed that heat lamp or a hot rock. 
because yeah. if I didn't have a, a heating system underneath all these tropicals, it also would slow down their growth. So you need the heat and the light and the humidity and fertilizer and all the other stuff that you do. So when you bring the tropical trees in and the PAs and the ficuses and all that, and you come inside and you're talking about all this massive growth. Do you work on your trees at all during the winter? And are, are they resting or are they not? And, you know, how much you dig it in? Because a lot of people want to work on trees all the time and can't help but work on them. But should we or shouldn't we? What's your opinion on that? And what do you do with yours? It depends on what the system is that you have. I believe that I can repot almost any tree, any tropical, uh, for sure, uh, downstairs, because it doesn't know that it's not summertime. Gotcha. And in fact, some of mine, maybe because I'm pushing them a little too much and I should cut down on the hours of light by an hour or two, mm -hmm. I think they think in wintertime, they're in summertime. Sure. And then when I put them outside, then they think it's wintertime and they don't grow as much. Interesting. I think I've reversed it like a, most people say a little baby gets their day and nights confused. Sure. I think my little babies are confused down there. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I have gone a little back and forth in my plant room here where I'm at and I do have a lot of light. I don't have any mylar. I am by a North facing window and I do warm the place up and there's plenty of humidity because I have a lot of fish tanks in my room. So it, it has really good. Like you said, it's almost like the trees are thinking it's summer and, I brought some, uh, we've got some workshop trees from when we had our workshop this year that I picked up and purchased so I could try them as well. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, the Melina or the Premnas. They're tropical trees, not ficus, but they're a tropical tree. And my Premnas are growing like a weed right now. I mean, they're thinking <laughs> it's the middle of summer with humidity and heat. And I literally have inches of growth and it's only November the 10th, you know, yeah. since I brought Isn't them in, cool? they're just growing. They're growing like crazy. <laughs> yeah. And if, if your what's in the background behind you is mm -hmm. accurate, you don't even have the lights very close to it. Right. It really At the moment, I do not. Not these right here. No. Okay. Because I, I've got an old light meter that sometimes I take to workshops. And it's my dad's old light meter from like in the 50s or something. Sure. So it's really like an original solar panel because that's all it is. And the sun hits it and the meter goes up and tells you how many foot candles it is. And yeah. I was doing this, some experimenting because we were working in a Port Licaria workshop um, a little past its prime time. And so a month and a half before the workshop, I planted up one of the Port Licarias in late September okay. just to see if it would still grow and be healthy handling the, uh, transition into a new pod into the Akadama. And yeah. so for nearly a month and a half, I had it at a window and I used this light meter to check and see how many foot candles it's getting at the window. Yeah. And it was, it's interesting how much of a difference it makes if it's five feet from that window or if it's five inches from the window. Sure. And it also makes a difference if your windows are new windows or if they're old windows. Because I've got a bay window, a bowl kind of window that is still older and hasn't doesn't have the the R factor to help keep it insulated, and right. it doesn't have a little bit of tint or whatever the other ones have. And it's amazing how much more light I can get on a cloudy day on the north side of my house through that old window 
rather than the south side of my house through a new window. New window. Interesting. So it makes a big difference. Yeah. But, yeah. but like I tell all the people in the class, if you have a window that's not giving enough light and your plant starts to suffer, get some kind of a reading lamp. If that's all you have is you're a beginner yeah. and you have one tree, just yep. put that sucker right over the tree. Right on it. Yes. Yes. I've said the same thing in our workshops. Of course, the risk we run um, with the lights being a little bit higher here than the lights in the other part of my room is if they are higher and they're not getting as much light, but they want to grow, we run that risk of them becoming leggy, long and leggy, yep. and, and the inner nodes are too big. So I have to watch that carefully down here. Yeah, my Portland areas that under light in the basement get so nice and compact over the winter, yes. even more than being outside in the summer. So let's wrap up winter with one final question. And I don't think we have to worry too much in our area, although we do if we don't prepare our trees coming inside the right way. Any pest issues for your trees when you bring them into cold frames or your plant room? And how are you dealing with pest issues? How do you prepare your trees when you bring them in for the winter? Well, we just had this in a meeting at our uh, MBS also, yep. our Milwaukee Bonsai Society. And... Uh, they were talking about a number of different things you can do. Uh, we have a very nice, uh, whatever, homeopathic, ecological safe thing. That's yep. water with a little bit of do John, with a Dawn dish detergent and a right. little bit of alcohol and yep. a little bit of oil. And you mix that all up and spray your trees and you spray them once or twice or three times and then they're good. And then some of the other guys are using a little bit scarier approach using some of the lime sulfur from the gin sure. seal and right. mixing that with water and spraying it. So I tried the gin seal way this year, but I've never had a bug problem, uh, generally speaking. Yeah, I've, I've tried to keep as organic as possible myself. I have used the soap methods. Uh, and a lot of people talk this year about some of the um, insecticidal soaps that are out there, some of those organic versions, instead of going to that lime sulfur route. Um, of course, like everything else that's divisive in our society, you know, uh, it's chemical or not chemical, that's to each their own, but it looks like there's a lot of ways we can all try organically. Healthy trees are not going to have as many issues to begin with. And so we always try to do the best with our trees. So we don't have to go the chemical warfare way. I did find a problem with one of my trees. I have a number of ewes because they're just so easy to grow and they're coming along great. And I found a trick from Graham Potter to get more little U branches growing out of there. Okay. And that's pick off all the needles off of a branch uh, that aren't that near the tip. And every place where you pick the needles off, then you'll get a new branch out. So I've got clusters of little branches that are so tight. And when I was cleaning up some trees one day, I picked some of those branches and the clusters out. So it would be a little bit thinned out. And yeah, here's some mealybugs having a good time in there where it's so compact, you sure. couldn't even see them in there, but they were in there hiding. There was a saying back in the 70s that you need to talk to your trees. And that's really a true thing. Not that talking does you any good, but when you're talking to it, you're looking at it. It's and when you're looking at it, you'll see something before it gets out of control. Spring solstice. Spring is a busy time for bonsai. What does your spring look like, Brian? It's probably the same as yours. Went to college at River Falls, you know, just past Hudson, Wisconsin. Yeah. And uh, so I had an idea what it was like 
in your neck of the woods. And I remember in May, it was 90 degrees up there. Yeah. And we're you being like next to Lake Michigan and you're kept a little bit more temperate here. Yeah. So you don't have the ups and downs in springtime like you do. Sure. Sometimes you can get caught by taking your trees outside and then you get a cold snap. It's nicer for us to keep a more constant temperature. That's one of my questions I was going to ask you about spring and fall when we get to fall. And since you brought it up, we often joke up here um, or kind of over end up here from where you are a little bit, but uh, is the bones I shuffle. I mean, we, you know, to, to take trees out of the cold frame or not based on these fluctuations. And like you said, in Minnesota, I'm in the Southeast suburb of St. Paul and yet in May we're hitting nineties. We could hit nineties in late September. So yeah. You really have it. Really can wreak havoc on with really big roller coaster dips. So you saying yours is a little bit more even keel where you are. Yeah, and that makes it easier for us. Um, my brother and I go out and fly radio control uh, gliders out in Kansas and South Dakota, okay. and they have more extremes like you do. They can get the warm blast of air up from New Mexico, and that'll get warm, and the next day it'll be back back down to thirty degrees. And it really varies, and it really shows in in the kind of trees that they have there. They don't have hardly anything deciduous there. Okay. They have all the junipers, and and, sure. and that's pretty much it. And most of the farmers don't like the junipers, so I like it when I go there, and they have really nice junipers. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the humidity then where you are in spring before even summer hits. Is that a factor because of how close you are to the lake, or are you far enough away it's not a big deal? No, we got lots of humidity, but I don't know. Everything seems to deal with it. Uh, I yeah. have some uh, junipers that have to be sprayed with the fungicide, um, you know, a lot in the springtime and summer. And then it seems like it tapers off. Otherwise, you get those big orange globs of fungus growing on it. So sure. I have to stay on top of that. For sure. And we've had some uh, members who say, oh, it's just too much work to spray it once a week with fungicide. And it's like, for a real cool tree, spraying it isn't much work, really. Yeah, yeah. And I, one lady said, I just threw mine out because I had too much fungus on it. And it's like, no, you just have to spray it. And, you know, every time it rains, you spray it again. Yeah. So obviously spring is a repotting season. So uh, what is, you know, what are you doing? How soon do you start in your neck of the woods? And how long does it go? And, of course, it depends on how many trees you have and what kind of trees. But what does a typical spring look like for you in repotting? Um, well, that's going to be a good call because, you know, I've been it for six years now and I got a whole lot of trees next spring that I have to repot. Most of my trees start out in big pots and finally they've been downsized and now it's been three years in those downsized pots and it's, it's about time for them to go. The Akadama is breaking down. They're still happy. So sure, it'll sure. take me, uh, I've probably got 10 of them or something that'll need to be repotted next year. And, and that's not the majority of the work. The majority of the work is I'm too cheap and I make my own pots. That takes more time. <laughs> ah, that, there you go. Another hobby to keep you busy as if bonsai wasn't busy enough for you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it gives me something to do in January, make pots for my trees. When do you typically start? Do you start not till um, uh, you start in April, March, May? What do you, when do you start typically? Um, it'll be May is a yeah. safe time. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. about it. Things will start to grow then and yeah. you can do it in May. 
it depends on the season, depends on global warming, maybe. I always refer to microclimate. Your microclimate is going to be different than the person who lives uh, 10 miles to your east or west, I would imagine. Especially with a lake nearby. <laughs> um, you mentioned Nakadama a couple of times. Let's go down the soil well here. Let's go deep down into the well. Um, what do you use for soil and what do you recommend uh, in your five, six years of bonsai in here? What, what, what works well for you? And you mentioned Nakadama a lot. Well, I've changed in soil according to what teachers have taught me. And you get yeah. talking to the new teacher. And the people who are doing most of the teaching right now at a club, we got a really good system going with the two teachers, Steve Carini and Brian Sussler. And both of them have learned things from the internet, but mostly from uh, uh, Ryan Neal out in Portland. Yep. And so they're using Aoki blend and Akadama and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they, they sell us the soil. So there are pushers and we're addicted to them. And, you know, we buy it all from them and yeah. <laughs> it's working great. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I wish you, I wish it wouldn't break down over time, but it does. It but does. It, it's kind of like a clock telling you your roots are probably grown enough that you should clip them back anyhow. Summer solstice. Um, well, then let's push to summer. Uh, so you said you get into the 90s there quite often in the summertime, but uh, what is your summer bonsai life like? Well, it, it's so rainy in the spring. I'm afraid some of the trees are getting overwatered sometimes. Oh, you get a lot okay. of stuff, up, a lot of rain coming up from, from the Gulf and everything that it can be really rainy. Uh, but this year wasn't too bad once we got past uh, May and June. And then we had some long stretches where it was nice and dry. And then it got to be 90 degrees in the summer. And some of them were being watered twice a day. Sure. One of the weird things, and I don't know if you've noticed it too, but I swear it's gotten windier. And some of my trees have just gotten the leaves whipped off of them in the, in the springtime, put out a new set of leaves, and they just get whipped off. The wind has been a factor. Now, my particular microclimate and where I'm at, I'm kind of buffered from the wind because I'm in a little bit of a, a lower area compared to my neighbors. And so their trees, their houses, I just have a little bit more protection. We often leave our house and go, oh, well, I didn't even know it was this windy. I mean, we can see at the tips of the trees if we're really paying attention. But yeah, and that's, you know, I've had to take some off the benches because the leaves are being whipped around so much for a day or two, just protect them by putting them at ground level. And then the wind, of course, is going to dry your trees out more. So you have to keep it on that. If it's 90 degrees and no wind, it's different than 90 degrees and wind. Which goes back to the same thing we've been talking about. You really have to check your trees often and know what's going on. And yeah, get them off those benches if the wind is... And it depends it, on what your benches are made out of. Yeah. Uh, Chris Baker at the Chicago Botanical Gardens, he's a curator of the gardens down there. And all of their benches are made of like marble. And he says, I've got, I've got trees that are in my greenhouse that I'll never be able to put on display because it just can't handle the heat of the marble in the courtyard. Ah. So don't ever use anything like a, a brick bench or anything like that because it'll heat up and it's yeah. bad enough that your uh, clay pot is going to heat up in the sun. Or if you have a black colored clay pot, it'll heat up more. That's putting your bonsai on a hot plate by the sounds of it. Yeah, it is. 
Yeah. Yeah. All my all my uh, benches are still made out of wood right now, so I think I'm I'm in a little bit better situation, I guess. You mentioned watering a couple of times a day, then. So again, obviously based on conditions and dryness and wind and all those things, but you're finding you have to water a couple of times a day through most of that heat of the summer. Then it sounds like. No, just when it gets really hot. Yeah. Um, mine don't get a lot of sun. Mine are on the east side of the house, and then I have some woods on the east side. So they might get direct sun for four hours out of the day. So that really controls how much they sure. transpire. We just talked about that heavily at one of our last fundamentals group. And we talked about the whole shade cloth concept. And sounds like you're in a situation where some people worry they don't have enough sun with, you know, four, five, six hours of direct sun a day. But from this last group session that I was in, we don't maybe want that six to eight hours of direct sun, especially with some species, because then you just need to introduce shade cloth, even in Minnesota, maybe full direct sun by, the, by what I'm learning here is not so great. So it sounds like your growing area is kind of a nice little blend of shade and sun. Yeah, it is. And in the spring, since most of the trees in the woods are deciduous, so in the spring, they're letting more light in. When it gets warmer out, they put out their shade cloth and help protect me with their natural leaves on the tree shade cloth thing. In your nice warm inside environment that your trees think it's summer, you're repotting most of your tropical things or you can repot them in, in uh, the winter months, but are you repotting a lot of them in the summer as well? Your tropicals then? Uh, do you do that in the summer? Yep, I do. They always say in one of the hottest days of the summer, or for you guys, it might be June, <laughs> 90 days. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's been one of those years. We had a very mild uh, fall after a very dry, hot summer and not as much rain in the spring, like you said you got. So it's been hot. So we've had to battle the heat issue this year a lot. Um, we have a permanent exhibit at the Linden Sculpture Gardens on the north side of Milwaukee. Okay. And there are 25 or 35 trees there on permanent exhibit. And sure. on Monday, I was up there again taking helping to take the shade cloth down. And it's a, it's a pretty open weave shade cloth. You can tell okay. the difference when you're sitting underneath it. If you have a workshop out there in the middle of the summer, sure, uh, sure. you can tell that you're under the shade, but it really lets a lot of light through. So maybe it cuts down 20% or something. As, as always, as, we, as we've mentioned, really looking at each tree and how they're reacting to where they are in your garden and, and just repositioning and, and uh, finding the spot that they like best. There's a couple of the trees that I'm trying to get to grow more. They're still in a, you know, more beginner stage. And those I move around the corner from my shaded bonsai area. So it gets more south sun and sure. trying to do something to help them out. Yeah, absolutely. Fall solstice. What, uh, what are your fall preparations? Uh, how do you prepare and what happens in the fall for your bonsai there in, Mil in the Milwaukee area? Well, I'm pretty relaxed about it. Some of the guys really get into uh, cutting leaves off rather than let them fall off and uh, other things. But uh, other than keeping them healthy and then like we were talking about earlier, doing whatever kind of spray so you don't get your bugs to come inside. Sure. And just making sure that they are a good healthy stage and then uh, doing the fall cutback if you need to for some of the trees so you can get more ramification and more buds to pop out so springtime will work out better for you. 
Yeah. So there is a fair amount of pruning you can do on a lot of trees. So you are preparing it for ramification in the, in the spring. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's for sure. For sure. Um, we haven't talked about fertilizer a lot and I've heard a lot more with, uh, I've seen with Bjorn on some of his uh, YouTube stuff and, and, and listening to some of the, the professionals out there. Um, the importance of fertilizing in the fall as well, even with high nitrogen, not that we're trying to push out growth now, but to prepare the trees for the next year. What, what is your fertilizer regimen in any of the seasons, but in fall, are you still fertilizing? I mean, now it's probably done, but what is your fertilizer like for you? I generally fertilize most of the time. Yeah. Uh, there was a story that one of our club members who's really into details of things found out and he said, you know, the theory that you don't give it fertilizer in the fall because it just doesn't need it or something. It doesn't need the phosphorus or whatever it is. Okay. He said that theory came from a story back in England 150 years ago, and they didn't need the phosphorus or the acidity in the soil in the fall because everything, everybody was burning coal and heating their houses with wood. So all this ash would come down on all the trees and that just ruined their experiment with that outside influence of how they were heating everything. Oh. It was an interesting story, and I may be getting a little bit of it wrong, but he says just fertilize all the time and you'll be good. Fertilize, fertilize, fertilize. Yeah, yeah I, know, uh, I know Nigel Saunders up in Canada. He fertilizes all the time. And I'm a little lazy on things because I've got other things to go on in my life, and some people are so into... Uh, the organic fertilizers and everything and being so cautious, trying to get the uh, micronutrients to grow in there and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I just don't have time. So sure. the, the fanciest thing I do is if I have a, a tree that's not green enough is I'll use a, um, a dried uh, cake, kale, kelp from Norway. Oh, okay. Sure. It's called, but I picked it up as some, a, a company that was doing indoor gardening and sure. you can get this dried organic seaweed sure. thing that really greens up whatever you have. It's yeah. just a 0017, I think are its numbers. Wow. Yeah. And I'll, I'll use it, especially on a, a burning bush that I have. And it was getting real pale, like the ones around my yard do. And I gave it a couple of doses of that. And it was like the greenest tree that I had on the bench. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about the micronutrients and soils and, and then the seaweed. And yeah, that's been a lot of lot of interesting discussions out there. And I did try some seaweed products this year. And I can't say that I noticed some crazy big green differences of color, but uh, my trees did fine. So, I mean, I think it was okay, but I don't have yeah. enough data to say like, oh yeah, that was horrible or it was the best thing ever. Now, yeah. sometimes when I fertilize mine, because they're in small pots and if they, I think they really need some fertilizer. And yeah. if I'm not using little cakes or whatever, because yep. I am using, uh, I think it's called Grow Power that yep. Bjorn suggested. Yeah, Grow Power. And yeah. That, works, that works really good for mine. But if I have something that really needs a kick, I'll mix up a, a dish pan with fertilizer water and just let it soak in there for 10 minutes. Oh, sure. And give, it a, give it a chance to absorb that fertilizer. Otherwise, you know, with your hakadama or whatever, it just runs right through and the roots are just trying to grab it as it goes by. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That is the risk we run with any, especially liquid fertilizer. 
with our soil that's so airy um, and it drains so well, the fertilizer is draining right out with the water. Uh, so yep. it might not be capturing as much. What are some tips that you have just for the care of bonsai in the upper Midwest? What what works, what doesn't? A couple of pointers from your experience. Well, my biggest tip to anybody who's new to the hobby, who's just getting addicted, is join the club. Yeah. Because anytime you have a problem with a tree, before you go walking in there with your dead juniper that you kept on your dining room table for two months, um, <laughs> Go to the club and talk to the people at the club. And then if you have a plant that's going downhill for whatever reason, go and ask them before it dies. And I, I think some people are just so shy and they don't do that. I've had a couple of classes with pretty good sized groups of people, 20, 30 people, and I'm sending out emails ahead of time so I can start teaching them before we have the class. And then I say to them afterwards, you know, bring your trees into the class, into the meetings and ask us some questions or email me back if you have a problem. And I just don't hear from them. I think they're afraid. Yeah. And, and finally, well, the other day uh, yeah. at our meeting uh, last Tuesday, um, one of the women brought in her tree from a class and she says, I'm dropping leaves. Why am I dropping leaves? And she was like, five days behind in watering this port area that was in Akadama and it was newly in the Akadama. So the leaves were very thin and it's like, okay, how would you feel if you were getting that amount of water that your, your soil was that dry, put right. yourself in the place of the tree. And I think that's the best thing, you know, whatever kind of soil you're using and yeah. it, it switches off. You can buy a new Portland area that's in, you know, the kind of soil that they use in, in Florida and you're watering it one way. And yeah. then you have another one, like this one woman's plant I'm taking care of. It's in a pot that doesn't have a hole in the bottom. It's oh. like, so I'm watering it a different way. And I sure. give it these little half waterings, just enough to get it by for two or three days. I yeah. never get it totally saturated because I know the soil is, like all peat moss and it'll hold on to all that moisture and her plant is doing so much better since I got it. Good. <laughs> She's going to be amazed. <laughs> that, that's awesome to hear. Yeah. I would, you know, give the same advice as far as joining your local club. So for your neck of the woods, it's the Milwaukee Bonsai Society. For my neck of the woods, it's the Minnesota Bonsai Society. And there's just so much uh, help and assistance. And we all Anybody who's gone to these meetings and who have been to a few of them or several of them like I have now will talk your ear off about bonsai. And I do have to say when I was young and first getting into the group, young into the group, I should say, that it is a little intimidating. So when you walk into a bonsai meeting, there's these, there's all these phrases being thrown around, Nabari and Shari and this and that. And <laughs> Japanese uh, Jack uh, Black Pine is king of bonsai. Whoa, wait, what's that? Uh, Portulacarias can't be bonsai. What? Whose opinion is that? It can be a little daunting, but boy, when you just start talking bonsai with some of these folks, we'll go on all night long. So yeah, go, go to the clubs and let them support you in your journey for sure. I agree. We started doing something different with our club um, that I think really helped. So it was probably three or four years ago that I sent out a eight or 10 question survey to see what people wanted from the club. Okay. Because we seem to have so many beginners all the time. So we're always trying to work with those beginners. 
And then we're also finding out how many people come there just for the camaraderie. Sure. So now the, the meeting, the, the room is open. We have some vendors there that sell and we're spending 45 minutes just letting people walk around and talk and get a conversation and make new friends. And then we'll get into the different things that we have going for the meeting, but getting into giving them some time so they can start to make friends. So they're not shy about admitting to somebody that they've got a plant that's dying. And the other friend, new friend of theirs says, yeah, I killed one of those too. Exactly. And, and, and you have to, you know, break that ice a little bit and giving them some time makes a difference. Oh, the other thing that the club is good for yeah. is when you, you know, I'm 68 years old. When you get to be 78 years old, you might not be able to care for your trees as well or 80 something you can't care for them or you have an illness. That's the other good part about a club. You can call a member. He'll go over and water your trees if you're in the hospital for a couple of days or whatever is going on. For sure. And, and then if you eventually die, like we all do, that's a source for your trees that you've been working on your whole life. Yeah. So it's kind of like, don't think about a tree as just a tree that's yours. It's like a friend of mine that bought an old BMW and he had a friend saying, now this isn't your BMW. This is a car that you're going to be passing along to the next generation. Sure. And that's sure. what we do with our bonsais too. We yeah. care for it. We get help from our friends and we pass it along to the next generation. It's nice to see more uh, folks here in the West talking that, that way. And I think our club in Minnesota is doing similar stuff where, yeah, you know, the legacy of that person is that tree. The legacy of those trees are going to live on if we can uh, have someone help take care of them and maybe put them to that next person who's going to take care of it after that person passes. So absolutely a wonderful thing to have happen. So it's, it's nice to know that uh, the clubs are doing that for sure. And, and my concern isn't like some people, they want to sell their trees and make some money. Yeah. I want to give my tree to somebody who I know will take care of it. Yeah. That's my priority. Right. Someone who's really going to give it the care and the, the deep respect and the passion and uh, everything that you've put your life into that tree. Uh, you want someone who's going to do something similar. Well, Brian, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to talk bonsai with me. It was a great time, and I'm glad I can share some of the stuff from the Milwaukee Bonsai Society, the other MBS. We'll talk soon. Hopefully, we'll see you in Milwaukee someday. All right, we will. See you. All right, bye-bye. My thank you to Brian Lorenzen, the president of the Milwaukee Bonsai Society. For more information on Brian and the Milwaukee Bonsai Society, check him out on the website, milwaukeebonsai.org. From the Bonsai Acres Studios, this is David Weiss with Up North Bonsai.